All right, if you have your Bibles now open, I trust that you do, Romans chapter 1. Let me invite you to stand with me. I want to read verses 18, Romans 1, 18, down through the end of chapter 1, verse 32. And then we will ask the Lord to bless our time under the preaching of the word of the Lord. Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. Why? Because God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurities so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of the God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is not natural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and they burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of that error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, all wickedness, all greed, all evil, full of envy and murder and strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They are inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. And although they know the righteous decrees of God, and that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice along with them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we call out to you in prayer. Lord, without question, knowing these words and reading these words, they leave our mouths open and our hearts bowed way down low before you. Father, some of these words bring conviction on all of us. Somewhere within them we have seen reflections of ourselves, Father, for we are among those people who know the truth well within our hearts, but oftentimes we find ourselves suppressing that truth, 
rather than humbling ourselves and obeying that truth, we excuse ourselves and we justify our behavior and we suppress the glory of the wonder of the wisdom of God that you have graciously given us. So, Father, as we come before you, we beg for your mercy and that the blood of Christ might cover us and make us suitable in your sight as we gather in your name and sit before your open word and hear you speak to us. Father, I pray that we would treasure the opportunity that we have. And Father, I pray that you would fill all of us with your spirit and enable us to hear. I pray that your spirit would take my often confusing and senseless words and make sense of them and empower them and make them sharp and allow them to pierce all of our hearts and bring us to the point of repentance and obedience. And Father, then raise us up and cause us to walk in your glorious light and bear fruit for your glorious name. Lord, we praise you and we love you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week, um, I could tell on many of your faces that it was a sermon that really let the wind out of your sails. I could see from some of your expressions that you felt um, just weak before the wrath of the Lord. And I know many of you had questions, and they were good questions. I had several people ask me questions, and I I pray that you will wrestle over those questions. I try to be helpful with, with some of those, but many of your questions, you need to be noble, as the text says, and wrestle with those questions in the text and not be the arrogant one who says, well, that's not what I believe. That's the height of arrogance. But rather, humble yourself and open the Word of God and diligently seek the answers to your questions in Scripture because... Talking about the wrath of God, as I said last week, is the most difficult thing. It is the most difficult subject that we'll find in the pages of Scripture. But nonetheless, it's the reality, it's the truth. And so we have to apply ourselves to understanding the wrath of God just as much as we seek to understand the love of God. Now, I continue to give you tidbits of introduction because we're going to be in the same thought from 118 all the way to verse 320. So it'll be a while before we come up to the end of this. But as I said last week, I'll always try to bring you to the top of the water at the end of every sermon so you can draw a breath. Because the very next week, I'll push us right bound, back down to the depth of the depravity of man and the wrath of God. But someone has rightly described this section as a medical chart. It's the written record of the great physician's diagnosis of man's condition. And it is one of him being gravely ill afflicted with absolute depravity. And so that's why we find so much about the wrath of God in these passages, because God meets our sin with His wrath one way or another. It was the wrath poured out on the Son in your behalf, or it will be the wrath poured out on you and you alone for your unrepentant and unpaid for sins. So we have to spend time here. Now, just the phrase itself, the wrath of God in the English Bibles, you'll find that 11 times. The first time you'll come across it is in a chapter that you would not expect it, but it's in John chapter 3. And we were in John 
almost nine years ago now. We sat down and we first started walking together, and that's the book that we walked through. And when you think about John 3, you think about John 3.16, and you think about the love of God. And certainly that is a good place to sit down and meditate and rejoice in. But we forget that just two verses later in 3.18, it says, He who believes in Him or the Lord Jesus is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already. In other words, if you're not in Christ, the wrath of God currently rests upon you. In fact, John will say in verse 36, just a few verses later, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Present tense, even now. So appreciative, and I'll never forget, Rob did VBS for us. Uh, that concluding night where he preaches the gospel, and I believe it's been a couple of years ago now, if not three, and he took us to John 3. And he talked about both of those aspects, the love of John 3.16 and the wrath of God of John 3.36. It currently abides on you if you're apart from Christ. And that's the same picture that we get in verse 118. If you'll notice there, the wrath of God is present tense, currently revealed from heaven. It's a Present tense reality for you, it's not just coming, it is now. In other words, there is no safe place of indecision. If you're still considering Christ, you need to understand you're standing on a cliff and the rocks are slippery and at any moment you could plunge to your death because you're already there. You're already judged. You're already under the wrath of God. You're not sitting freely trying to make your free will decision for Jesus and you're weighing out which would be the better option and when to do it and how long to wait. That's foolishness. You are currently under the heavy hand of His judgment even now. In regard to the word for wrath, there are many references that we find in the New Testament, but I shared with the guys last week, there are far more references to the wrath of God in the book of Romans than any other New Testament book. And when you consider that Romans is about the gospel from beginning to end, you have to understand the critical importance of considering the wrath of God in light of the gospel. So this is clearly without question the character of God when we speak about the wrath of God. Again, I found myself here last week as I do many weeks when the Lord described Himself. He is, and I hope you have it memorized by now, He's compassionate, He's gracious, He's slow to anger, He's abounding in loving kindness and truth, yet... He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Not one single measure of guilt does He let go. Not one single rebellious attitude or action does He sweep under the rug. Not one single thing does He turn away or tussle your hair or let it go. It's all judged and it's all brought under the wrath of God. Now, I found it interesting as I went back, and let me encourage you to do that now. Run back with me to the book of Jonah. And I want to show you what I found reading back through it this week. And again, I'll remind you that this book is 
one of the Old Testament mountain peaks of the grace of God. It's absolutely amazing what God did here and what little preaching took place to bring it about. Of course, I told you, as far as wicked people go, even considering throughout the history of time right up until the day, you'd be hard-pressed to find a people more wicked than the people of Nineveh or the Assyrians. Certainly they'd rank in the top five of all time terrible people. And maybe even number one still reigning, but as far as this time goes, they were number one as far as wicked and evil people. And Jonah didn't want anything to do with them. He wanted the wrath of God poured out on them. And so when God extended his grace, Jonah was angry. He was so angry. Look at him preach the gospel. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. And you'll see this message that Jonah preached. It's pretty disappointing as far as gospel preaching goes. But it says, then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And that's interesting because in the verse before that, it says, Now Nineveh was exceedingly great, a three days walk. It said, Then Jonah began to go through the city a one day's walk, and he cried out and he said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Amen. Let's pray. That, that was it. Of course, you see their response Verse 5, then the people of Nineveh believed in God. They called the fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. And when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne. He, he laid aside his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and he sat on ashes. And he issued a proclamation and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hand. Who knows God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Now, when you read that, you need to go time out Wait a minute, because the book of Jonah, Jeremy, Jeremy, we were talking about this Wednesday night. The book of Jonah is really a declaration of God against his own people because he couldn't get them to repent. They would not repent and God had done everything for them. And so God says, Jonah, let me show you something. I'm going to walk you down to the most wicked people on the planet. I want you to say what you're going to say and watch what happens and it is one of the most profound moments of repentance that you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. And you're like, wait a minute. How come such a wicked people does such a good job of repenting? Wait a minute. That must mean that even repentance itself is a gift from God. And certainly you would be right. Even the best of us in the best times can't muster enough repentance to glorify God. And yet, by the grace of God, he works even repentance up in our own heart. But notice what Jonah says. I can't spend too long here. Look at chapter 4. Look at verse 2. Jonah prayed to the Lord and he said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew... Listen to the characteristics of God that he quotes, that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. See, that's another reason that the book of Jonah is here to remind us of the good character of God. He is willing to forgive. But you turn over just a couple of pages, walk through Micah, come out to Nahum. 
And you'll see the other side, if you will, of the character of God. Notice with me Nahum. I'll begin in verse 1 because it's an oracle or a judgment that's pronounced against the same city. Bible scholars estimate 100 years later. And look what Nahum says. And he's not even speaking in the city. He's speaking more than likely to the people of God, the Israelites. But this is what is said about Nineveh. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries. He reserves wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power. And notice the second part of verse 3. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And there's the second half of that verse. And so the book of Nahum is God pouring out His wrath. And it's the same city. Jonah, you see the grace. Nahum, you see the wrath. And we're reminded that we are enjoying the days of Jonah, if you will, because we're in the days of mercy. We're in the days of grace. And no matter how good or poor my gospel might be, you know what you have to do. You have to turn from your sins and put your faith in what God has done for you through His Son. Because the days of Nahum come and they come quickly. And there will be no more mercy. And all that will be left is the wrath of God. So walk back with me to the book of Romans. I had to show you that. I, I couldn't believe, I couldn't just leave that. But it's, it's amazing to me that Jonah was so angry at the mercy of God that was poured out toward people he didn't like. But he wasn't a bit angry about the mercy of God that had been shown him. He, he liked that mercy, but he didn't want others to experience that mercy. And so we have to understand we can't ever underestimate the mercy of God. But when you get to Nahum, you realize we can never underestimate the wrath of God either because he will, he will pour out his wrath on sinners. I was speaking to the uh, fireman this morning. I had a couple of police officers join in. I was so thankful to see those guys there. But I asked them this question, have you, have you forgotten about the flood? Have you given much thought to the flood? In Genesis 6, it said God looked on the earth and it was corrupt for all the flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Behold, I'm about to destroy them from the earth. Now, you, you can't, I don't realize God didn't take a census. And so we have no clues to how many people that was. The smallest estimate that I could find as far as the population goes prior to the flood, the smallest estimate was 750 million people. Most scholars, uh, most scholars say between 1 to 5 billion, somewhere in there. But again, I know nobody understands that, but let me give you some perspective about that. There's a little bit shy of 5 million people in the state of Alabama. And let's say in the morning God wakes up and time's up as far as Alabama is concerned and He pours out His wrath on Alabama and He consumes every single man, woman, and child in the state except one man in His family. That's five million. You begin to comprehend the terrifying wrath and the judgment of God that was displayed in the flood. So why, why, why have we stopped talking about these things? Why do you no longer hear, 
Why was last Sunday, a few of you said that's the first sermon I've ever heard in my life that was dedicated to the wrath of God. You've mentioned it in passing, but we've never sat down. In fact, the entirety of my life, two people said, I've never, ever heard about the wrath of God like that. I don't know why we do that. This is what our Lord says in Luke 17. Listen to this, the words of Jesus. He says, just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and then the floods came and they destroyed them all. And then he goes on to say, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on that day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from the earth and destroyed them all. And then Jesus says, it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. So in other words, you know what we'll be doing when he comes? Some of us will be, build, some of us will be building homes. Some of us will be at work selling things. Some of us will be shopping, buying things. Some of us will be sitting at the table eating and drinking. Some of us will be getting married. Others of us will be giving our children in marriage. And in that very moment, He comes. And in fact, Peter goes on to say, the day of the Lord is like a thief. He just unexpected, totally unaware. It comes and His wrath is poured out. And, and all those who are not in Christ are absolutely consumed in the wrath of God eternally. I don't know why we'd stop talking about these things. But anyway, I remember this. When one generation stops talking about a truth, the next generation starts denying the truth. And so here we are. The African proverb is said like this. If dad jumps the fence, the son will jump the house. And so we have a church that is filled with people who don't believe in hell and they don't believe in wrath and they don't believe in a God who would punish them eternally. You know, there's parts of the wrath of God that we like. Let me give you an instance. Romans 12, where it says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. And we're like, yeah, I like it when the wrath of God is poured out on my enemies. Or when we think about Sodom and Gomorrah, we're like, absolutely, why wouldn't God burn down such a wicked people? That's a good thing. But then when we read about the wrath of God in other places, we're not so confident. In fact, it makes us a little uncomfortable. Mark 9, this is what our Lord says, If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands go into hell, into the unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That makes you really uncomfortable. Or what about Hebrews 10? If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment. And then he goes on to say it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. I had one preacher one time tell me, he said, I don't talk about those things because it's easier to catch more flies with honey. I'm old enough now to not care so much about what I'd say, so my response to that would be, well, you go catch flies. I've got something far more important to do 
And so we've got to talk about the wrath of God, just like we talk about the love of God. Back in Romans, why is Paul bringing up this wrath here at the beginning when he's opened up with such wonderful words talking about the good news of God? Well, there's two reasons that Paul immediately turns to the wrath of God. And number one, I've mentioned it's in, in order to prove our great need for this good news, certainly. But more importantly, this is why Paul turns to the wrath of God because of what he says in verse 17. Look at verse 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed and it is from faith to faith, just as it stands written, the righteous man shall live by faith. So why does, God, or why does Paul immediately start speaking about wrath? Because he's going to prove to you, you'll either be saved by faith alone or you will not be saved because there's nothing you can do to ever make yourself acceptable before God. You have nothing to offer Him. You have nothing to please Him. You have nothing to placate Him or make yourself somehow attractive to God. There's nothing there. So Paul says, let me show you that there's nothing there so you'll understand that you're saved by grace through faith or you're not. It has to be that way because there's nothing with you and it all rests on the Lord. So our only hope is to cast ourselves before the feet of God and beg for mercy and, and trust in His character and His work and His willingness to forgive and Certainly he will. So Paul, to lay this out for us and demonstrate this by faith alone, he basically divides men into two groups. The first group he talks about in verse 25. If you'll notice that with me, Romans 1 verse 25. And I'm going to put the literal in there. I don't know why the NAS takes out the these, but I think they're very important. So let me read it in that literal sense. 125 for they, this first group, exchanged the truth of the God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. In other words, God has written the reality of himself, the God, on their hearts. But they bought into the lie by turning away from the reality of the God. These are those people who reject the notion of the God either verbally by what they say or, or they, they're atheists by practically by how they live. In other words, you can pretty much meet anybody and look at how they live and go, okay, you have to be an atheist. In fact, I was talking sadly enough about where someone went to church to someone the other day or, or just actually more recently than that and their response was, they go to church? And I'm like, yeah, she said, by how they live, that is the most shocking thing I've heard all day. So when I speak about terrible, terrible testimony, but that's the testimony of some people. So when we speak about people who reject the notion of God, it, some people do it verbally, but some people just do it practically by how they live. But it's interesting enough that God lets them go and they wind up being idolaters. They worship false gods. And of course, we understand that because we understand where Tyler and Wallace are. and We've been to Myanmar, or at least I have, and we've seen them worship Buddha. And we go, yeah, I totally understand the worship of false gods. 
But it's interesting to me how you're blind to your own reality and you so clearly see the reality of other people's. Because we don't realize that America are some of the most prolific idolaters on the planet today. In fact, if you look at verse 23, you'll, ex you'll see what we've done. Romans 1.23 says, They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of what? Corruptible man. No, our idol is not made with wood or made with metal or however formed by the hand. No, we worship a God that's in the image of man because we've created a God who is just like us. We've created a God that we like. We've created a God who loves without exception, who not, would not dare judge anyone, especially me and my few indiscretions. And I'm convinced we've even stole the name for this God and we've called Him Jesus. He's not the Jesus of the Bible at all. But He's the Americanized Jesus who's accepting to all, loves all, has zero wrath, and He will not judge Maybe except the super wicked, but certainly not me and certainly not my family. We are without question idolaters. But you know the end of these people, if you look at the end of verse 20, the very last few words, they are without excuse. Now Paul picks up the second group of people in, in, in Romans chapter 2. This is the people who recognize the God, worships the God, but their worship is external. There's nothing internal because internally they rely upon their own goodness. They rely upon their own good works. They think somehow that they've been good enough for God to look on them with pleasure and accept them. But look at chapter 2 verse 1 and, and watch how Paul starts the discussion about this group. Therefore you have no excuse. He says it twice. So whether or not you reject the reality of God in your own heart and make your own God, or you recognize the reality of God in your own heart, but you make your own way of salvation and your own righteousness, Paul says at the end of you, you're both absolutely without excuse. In fact, he'll say in Romans 3 when he comes to the conclusion of both men, there's none righteous, not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks after God, all have turned aside, Together they become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. And so Paul gets to the conclusion of every single man. And he says, y'all, it has to be by faith. Because there's never been a man born that was good. And so salvation must be by faith. Now, as I said... Paul says they're both without excuse. And we talked about this last week, but I want to take you back there. Why are they without excuse? Well, he tells us in verse 19 of chapter 1, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. So what about the man who's never heard? He's a shadow. He's a straw man. There is no such man. There has never been such a man. All men have this reality written upon their heart. Therefore, all men are without excuse and therefore all men justly deserve the wrath of God. Second question, how did God write that there? 
How did God make himself known? That's explained in verse 20. Notice with me. Since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what? That which has been made. Now we're back to creation. Uh, Paul can't escape creation, never can any of us who are faithful to the gospel, you can't escape the reality of creation. And even though we lost this battle some 50 or 60 years ago, the day you fold the book on the reality that God created the heavens and the earth is the day that you begin to slide away from God. And when you wind up at that bottom of that hill, you're going to find yourself under the judgment of God. He created the heavens and the earth, and if He did not, He is not God. If God did not create the heavens and the earth, He is an alien and powerful, albeit, form, and we better, over, we better figure out how to overthrow Him because He's going to destroy us all. But if He did create the heavens and the earth, then He is God, and you better bow down and worship to Him because He is compassionate and gracious, and He's full of loving kindness and truth, and He forgives sin, and so worship Him. He is God. But somehow, through the truth of creation, God has made Himself known. And look at verse, back at verse 20, and look at the particulars of what He has done. His invisible attributes, for since the creation, His invisible attributes, now skip them and look at the last part of that phrase, His invisible attributes have been clearly seen. It's fascinating. In other words, what you can't see, He's made you see. And Paul brings up, namely, two points here. His eternal power and His divine nature. Now, one commentator put this, and I think it's well worth mentioning. It says, the English version seems to imply too much. He says, the apostle does not mean to say that everything that may be known about God was revealed to the heathen, but simply that they had such a knowledge of Him that rendered them absolutely without excuse for their ungodliness. So in what respect did He reveal to Him or, or reveal to us His eternal power and His divine nature? That's difficult to explain. He did not reveal enough for salvation because when we get over to Romans chapter 10, without the preaching of the gospel, there is no salvation. So it's not enough to save, but it is enough to judge. It is enough to condemn justly but you'll have to hear the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation to take place. But God has made it clearly visible. They understand something of the eternal power of God and something of the divine nature of God, and God Himself has done this. Last week I run with the reality of the divine nature of God, and I wanted to come back to that. We, we talked about the first murder. Anybody remember the second one? I know there were a lot more in between these two. But turn with me to Exodus chapter 2. You know where that is quickly. And we'll go back, right back to Romans. But Exodus chapter 2, and let's, let's look at the second murder that we have. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up 
And he went out to his brother and he looked on their hard labors and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own brothers. Verse 12. So he looked this way and that. Why did he do that? Well, he tells you. And when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and he hit him in the sand. Why did he look this way and that? Because he wanted to make sure that nobody was going to see what he was about to do. Why did he hide the body in the sand? Because he wanted to make sure that nobody would find out what he had done. Here's the amazing thing about this. It's 40 years before God reveals himself to Moses in a burning bush. And it's even longer before God, or for Moses receives the law from God about thou shalt not murder. And so I asked the question last week, and I'll ask it again this week, how in the world did he know that was wrong? And you're like, well, you're being silly. No, abs absolutely, I'm not being silly. How did he know? Well, how did he know he had to hide? How did he know before I whack this guy in the back of the head, I need to make sure that nobody's looking? Why did he do that? Because he knew in the reality of his heart, this is wrong what I'm about to do. But he justified it. He justified it. That guy deserves to die. Because he's been beating my, my brothers, and so he deserves what I'm about to give him. But even though he deserves it, I do want to make sure that nobody's watching. And I do want to bury the body because I don't want anybody to find it. You see, that's what we do. We suppress the truth, we justify the truth, and we go right on ahead and walking in untruth. You can go back to Romans and I'll ask you a few more questions. I asked you about adultery last week. Did you ever have to teach your kids to lie? You know why we do lie? Because the truth is going to cause consequences in our life. Your kids lie because they want to avoid judgment. And you didn't have to teach them to do it. Now, where in the world did they figure that out? And why do they know to lie? Well, they know to lie because the reality of truth is already written on their heart. They know lying is wrong. But the consequences of the truth are worse. And so I'll lie and hide. I'll suppress the truth. And they can do it as soon as they can talk. They know rebellion is written against, or they know rebellion against authority is wrong. Poor old Audrey, I pick on her all the time. And I've told you this before. But before she could walk, before she could talk, we're sitting in the den floor and I had, pulled her hand away a countless time of that light or that socket near the floor. Countless times. No, no, we don't do that. Distract and go on. And this time she crawled right over to it as we're wrestling in the floor, sticks her finger toward it, looks back at me and touches it. And then she felt the wrath of dad on that little chubby leg because I popped the fire out of it. Before she could walk, and before she could talk, she knew it was wrong because she looked at me. And she wanted to say, I, I'll do it anyway. Where'd she get that? Well, I didn't teach her that. But God had written something of the reality of Himself on her heart just as He do, has done everyone. So, in other words, back to it, and I've already showed you part of it. So, what has man done with all this goodness that God has made each of them aware of, he has suppressed the truth 
as he says in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who do this business of suppressing the truth. Now, I have found this interesting, this thought, that man has put forth a great deal of effort on erasing the reality of God within himself since the first man was created. And if, if they're right, and I'm, I'm being facetious, if the world is 4.5 billion years old, in 4.5 billion years, they have not yet been able to erase the reality of God that's written on our hearts, even, to, even though they've been trying the whole time. Just in our lifetime, men that are very famous have tried and tried and tried to erase the idea of God from humanity. But you cannot, you will not, because God himself has put it there. But not only do we try to suppress the truth, this is a horrifying reality of humanity as well. We justify ourselves. Listen to this. This is not my words, but I thought they put it much better than I could. It has always seemed to most people that they are, on the whole, pretty decent people. They may not be perfect, but they have done no great wrong. Since they are conscious of no really disastrous sin, they feel that they must be right with God. Don't ever say something like this. If joy's not in heaven, woo, there's not going to be many people there at all. If I'm in heaven, God is much more gracious than any of us have realized. You understand that? We really are, whether we admit it or not, we really feel like, you know, oh, Joe, he, he's pretty good. I mean, have you ever known him to do anything bad? I mean, like horrible or wicked? No, he's a decent guy. He works hard. He loves his wife. He provides for his family. He gives of himself. I know him to be generous. I know somebody that he's done this and that for. I see the guy in church. He's a good guy. And God saves good people. Beloved, you have to preach this truth through your heart every day. There are no good people. And when you get to the point where you go, and especially me, you begin to understand the gospel. I, t I told you last week, I compared the Egyptians to the Hebrews, and I did it again with the firemen this morning, some of the police officers. You know, God rescues the Israelites, and he, he kills all the Egyptians in the bottom of the sea, right? And you find out that all those ten plagues were against those ten gods that the Egyptians worship. And you go, okay, that was just and that was good because they were idolaters. They worshiped false gods. They were oppressing God's people. So yeah, way to go, God. Kill the Egyptians. And you draw those Israelites out. And just a few days later, they take off their gold jewelry. They melt it down. They form it into a calf. They take off their clothes and they bow down and they worship this idol that they made. And you're like, are you kidding me? So why did God save them? Well, they're certainly not better people. I would say that they're worse people because they knew better all the more. But now we begin to understand the gospel better because we're saved by promise. And it's the promise that God has made in His Son. 
We're not saved because we're better people. We're not saved because we're good people. We're saved because God is a good God and He is a faithful God and He is a merciful God. I told the guys this week, I think the reason that we think we're good people is because, and we really do, wait till something bad happens to you tomorrow and you get mad about it. And the reason that you get mad about it is because you, don't, you think you didn't deserve that. And the reason you don't think you deserve that is because you're a pretty good person. Just wait. Somebody will cut you off in traffic. Somebody will steal your lunch out of the refrigerator. You'll get mad. And the reason you'll get mad is because you didn't deserve it. I'm a better person. How dare they? Okay, so you believe it. But we've forgotten how holy God is. Which makes our sin all the worse. And I gave this analogy Wednesday night. I had a black shirt on, so it worked better. But I said, you know, if I took my black pen and spilled it on my shirt and it's fountain pen and I do that sometimes and it's black ink. I'm going to wear it. It's no big deal. I don't even have to wash it because you're not going to see it. And the firemen had their, you know, darker navy shirts on this morning. I said, but if I was wearing your shirt and I spilled a little ink on it, there are a few people who would notice because, you know, there are people who notice things. I'm not one of them. I have no idea what you're wearing today. You can wear the same thing every week and I I won't notice at all. But there are people who will. And I said, so if there's somebody that really notices things and you get black ink on that dark navy shirt, somebody might go, oh, you got something on your shirt. No, 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 no. I broke my pen. It's no big deal. Can't really see it, can you? Nah. Can't believe I even noticed. No big deal. But I said, if I was wearing my white shirts that I wear on Sundays and I broke my pen with black ink, I've ruined that shirt. It's the same ink that I broke on all three shirts. Why would it ruin one and not affect the other? It's because one of them's white. And you spill something black on something white, you've ruined it. And when you sin before a holy God, you've ruined that holiness. And it's bad. And some of us may not figure out how bad sin is until we stand before God and we'll go, wait a minute, you're way, way more holy than I ever imagined. I am undone. I am so unholy. I thought I was okay, but now standing before you, I am not okay. I am horrible. That's how you'll be when you stand before a holy God. And you'll understand, oh, salvation has to be by faith and faith alone. Because I have absolutely nothing to bring for you or bring to you. That's our sin. That's his wrath. And so here is the conclusion of the matter, and I'm done. And I just want to read this to you. I wrote it in my study. So here's the conclusion of the matter. God is just. And He punishes all sin, every single solitary one without exception. And since all men are sinners, all men are under the wrath of God and are in desperate need of the grace of God for His deliverance. But the good news is this, God has delivered all those who have faith in the person and the work of His one Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so any man... Every man may come. Any man that will turn from his sin and put his faith in the Son will be saved from the wrath of God and welcome gladly into the family of God. 
Because this God of wrath is also a God of mercy who is willing to forgive sin. I think David said it better than anybody could ever say it. In Psalms 32, David says this, Oh, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Oh, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not count iniquity. Let's pray.